Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, this is CJ. Welcome to episode 93 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This will be another top 10 book episode, since the last one I did on top 10 Dangerous U.S. History books seems to have been pretty popular. So today I'm talking about my top 10 books to slay the state. And specifically, I'm talking nonfiction. There are plenty of fiction books that in various ways slay the state, but that would be a very different list, and I don't think it would make sense to mix the two together. So. Maybe Top 10 Fiction Books to Slay the State will be a good episode down the line sometime. Now, what I mean here by Slay the State is not necessarily that each of these books can, by itself, a la carte, destroy the state, but what I mean is that each of these 10 books played at least some significant role in attacking or ridiculing or delegitimizing or desacralizing or otherwise intellectually damaging the modern state as a concept, and that each of these books in one or more ways helps to show that the emperor's new clothes are really nothing to be impressed by. In fact, as they reveal, the emperor is just some sorry-ass buck-naked jerk who's really only an emperor because of people's willingness to believe he is and to submit and conform to his will. So, you'll find as I go through these books, there's a lot of diversity here. Some of these books are more historical, others are more philosophical, or perhaps economic or sociological, and not all these books are written by anarchists. But all of them, I think, whether their authors really intended so or not, end up, when at least the way I interpret them and put things together, pointing in the general direction of anarchism, of anti-state conclusions. Also, you'll find several of the books on my list are aimed more specifically at the concepts of democracy and democratic republics and so forth, rather than just at states generally. And I consider this very important because, of course, almost all states that exist on Earth today, with very few exceptions, make their claims to legitimacy and to authority on some sort of democracy-related story that they tell themselves and tell their subject populations. But before I get into the meat of this episode and start running through my books to slay the state, I've got to give my Patreon shouts for this episode. Four awesome individuals have signed up since my last episode over at patreon.com slash profcj. And they are Thomas, Cameron, Michelle, and Ken. Thank all four of you very much 
for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast, to keep it going and growing and improving. I hope some of you all listening, if you've not done so already, will consider supporting the show that way as well. And of course, any of the other ways you can support the show, I appreciate too. Go to profcj.org slash donate for some other ways. But remember, with the Patreon route, if you sign up to support this show on a per-episode donation of any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record after you've signed up. And in addition to that, for a minimum donation of, of at least $1 per episode, I will also give you access, or rather Patreon will, to special Dangerous History Podcast bonus episodes that are available to those donors who donate a buck or more per episode and are available nowhere else. So I think it's really a win-win. You get to help out this show. I don't have to hawk products and, and uh, do advertisements, which I'm open to the possibility of doing it, but I want to see if I can make this show really financially viable without going the... Um, the advertisement route. So anyway, I hope you'll consider supporting the Dangerous History Podcast if you're not already. All right, now on into my 10 books to slay the state. And as with my last episode, these books are not in any particular order. So here we go. First book I'll mention is The Law by Frederick Bastiat, which was first published in 1850. Frederick Bastiat was a French economist, philosopher, writer, and this book was actually published, I believe, the same year he died. He was, he was in the early to mid-19th century. And this is a fairly well-known book in sort of libertarianish circles. This book, from pretty early on, anticipates a lot of modern arguments as to why government interventions into the economy are bad. This book explains how Government interventions into the economy are violations of people's rights and that they also constitute a legalized form of plunder. In this book, Bastiat attacks the growing socialist movements of the mid-19th century, and he points out some of their tactics and contradictions and problems in the socialist arguments and, and beliefs, things that are still common today amongst many socialists. So, for example, Bastiat writes, quote, Socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. As a result of this, every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialists conclude that we object to its being done at all. We disapprove of state education, then the socialists say we are opposed to any education. We object to a state religion, then the socialists say that we want no religion at all. We object to a state enforced equality, then they say we are against equality, and so on and so on. It is as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting persons to eat because we do not want the state to raise grain, end quote. So I'd say that Bastiat is one of the earlier people, at least with whom I'm familiar, who explicitly differentiated between society, which is composed of voluntary human interactions and association, and the state which is all about coercion. Other than Bastiat, the only other person who comes to mind, at least right now, uh, who was earlier in really sussing out and, and delineating this distinction in an important way would be Thomas Paine in Common Sense, which I think is like right near the very beginning of Common Sense, where he says, society is a blessing and government is at best a necessary evil. 
And of course, many apologists, not just socialists, but apologists for the state of many flavors from ancient all the way through very, very recent times have done this, have conflated state and society as a way to justify the state. But of course, once this, uh, this distinction between state and society is pointed out, it becomes a lot harder to just justify the state doing all these horrible things by saying, well, society ought to blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe society ought to do whatever, but that doesn't necessarily prove the case that the state can and should and is justified in doing whatever it is they're talking about. Bastiat, as far as I can tell, was not really an anarchist. He was sort of a classical liberal minarchist of the 19th century, an advocate of what sometimes was called the night watchman state, the state that only protects life, liberty, and property. So someone of my perspective then would say that he doesn't go nearly far enough and that there are problems in that position. So for example, such a minimalist state, even if it was created, would really not be likely to remain limited for very long at all. See the history of the United States for exhibit A on that and even if you had a minimal estate that stayed minimal for, for an extended period of time, which I don't think you can find anywhere in history, but even just assuming for the sake of argument you could find such a unicorn, you still would have a philosophical and moral problem because even a minimalist state would have to employ aggression merely to exist. So you'd have this problem of a you know, Lockean state, as Bastiat seems to favor, that only protects life, liberty, and property, in order for it to exist in the first place, it has to violate some of those rights. You know, it has to, for example, tax in order to fund itself into existence. So my criticism of the law is it doesn't go nearly far enough. On the other hand, it does do a great job of particularly hitting the, the moral and practical problems of government intervention into the economy. And it's doubly impressive considering it's you know, well over a century and a half ago that this was written. Now, the next book I'm going to talk about is another one written by a Frenchman, actually written quite a bit earlier, three centuries uh, before the law. And this is a book about which I'm even more enthusiastic than I am about the law. I like the law. This is a book that I love. And this book is by Etienne de la Boetie, and it is titled The Politics of Obedience, The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. This book was written all the way back in the 16th century, or the 1500s, if you want to call it that. It's believed to have been written around 1549, and uh, we're not 100% sure exactly when, though. And it seems to have been first published, as far as I know, published illegally, because this is very dangerous stuff, and certainly uh, any European government of the time would have wanted to censor this heavily. But first published, sort of on the black market, under the radar, in around the 1570s, and uh, this would have been after its author, Etienne de la Boetie, had already died. This book flips the normal questions on, on its head that political science books ask. Uh, most political science books, whether you're talking ancient or modern, ask questions about, like, where does government get its legitimacy from? Uh, how should government operate? How should its uh, personnel be chosen? And so forth. And politics of obedience flips it around and examines the question of why the hell would anyone even obey a ruler in the first place? The book's divided into three parts, and the nice part is at the start of each of the three parts, Boeti throws out his basic argument, and then the rest of, of that part proceeds to elaborate on it in great detail. And so at the very beginning of the book, the very beginning of part one, 
Boetti lays out his main argument there. Quote, The fundamental political question is, why do people obey a government? The answer is that they tend to enslave themselves, to let themselves be governed by tyrants. Freedom from servitude comes not from violent action, but from the refusal to serve. Tyrants fall when the people withdraw their support. End quote. Like our good friend Bill Bupert has said, questioning authority is all well and good, but the more important thing is to question obedience. Because obedience is what gives authority its power. It's what makes authority, quote-unquote, authority in the first place. Bwetti argues that the people ultimately consent, at least the, the mass majority of them do, to their own oppression by being obedient to those who presume to order them about. And that without mass obedience, even the nastiest tyrants really wouldn't have any power. As Bwetti points out, they don't have, you know, superhuman strength or attributes. The king is just one guy. Even if he's a big, strong guy, he's just one guy. How on earth is he ordering about thousands or millions of people, right? And then the radical conclusion is, if they only have the power that people give to them, then by extension, at least in theory, if, if that consent is withdrawn, the tyrant is left, for practical purposes, powerless. So this is Bwetion Tyrants, quote, But if not one thing is yielded to them, if, without any violence, they are simply not obeyed, they become naked and undone and is nothing, just as when the root receives no nourishment, the branch withers and dies, end quote. And I have to say, this book is just rhetorically a masterpiece. I mean, to me at least, it's some of the most poetic and stirring writing out of any of the books I'm going to mention today. And because of that, and because of how short it is, it's just a very quick, easy read. I mean, I can remember the first time reading this book, not only did I plow through it very quickly, but like I almost jumped up out of my chair several times um, like to shout, yes, exactly. You know, uh, it was one of those times where things that you've been kind of thinking fuzzily in your own head are articulated with the power and force and elegance as if they were pounded out of, I don't know, Thor's hammer or something like that. So this probably will be one of the books, even though it's one of the shortest books I'm talking about today, it might be one of the ones that I end up reading the most little quotes and excerpts from. So anyway, here's a great sample of Bwetti talking more about some of the points I just mentioned. Quote, Poor, wretched, and stupid peoples, nations determined on your own misfortune and blind to your own good. You let yourselves be deprived before your own eyes of the best part of your revenues. Your fields are plundered, your homes robbed, your family heirlooms taken away. You live in such a way that you cannot claim a single thing as your own. And it would seem that you consider yourselves lucky to be loaned your property, your families, and your very lives. All this havoc, this misfortune, this ruin, descends upon you, not from alien foes, but from the one enemy whom you yourself render as powerful as he is, for whom you go bravely to war, for whose greatness you do not refuse to offer your own bodies unto death." He who thus domineers over you has only two eyes, only two hands, only one body, no more than is possessed by the least man among the infinite number dwelling in your cities. He has indeed nothing more than the power that you confer upon him to destroy you. 
from all these indignities, such as the very beasts of the field would not endure, you can deliver yourselves if you try, not by taking action, but merely by willing to be free. Resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight, and break into pieces. End quote. This very much ties into my own thoughts on freedom and how to pursue it. Be your own one-person revolution. Resolve to serve no more. Freedom starts in your mind. Make the decision to no longer mindlessly obey and conform. And then also the flip side is cultivate the most important resource that you will ever have in this life, which is yourself. Now, in the second part of the book, Boeti again summarizes what he's about to discuss in, in this next part. And here's how he puts it. Quote, Liberty is the natural condition of the people. Servitude, however, is fostered when people are raised in subjection. People are trained to adore rulers. While freedom is forgotten by many, there are always those who will never submit. End quote. This, by the way, sounds a lot like Albert J. Knox's idea of the remnant in his classic influential essay, Isaiah's Job. And if you've not read that, um, many of you probably have read it or at least heard of it, but I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode so that you can read it for yourself if you've not. Here's a quote from the second part of the book that could apply very well to most present-day Americans. Quote, It is incredible how, as soon as a people becomes subject, it promptly falls into such complete forgetfulness of its freedom that it can hardly be roused to the point of regaining it, obeying so easily and so willingly that one is led to say, on beholding such a situation, that this people has not so much lost its liberty as won its enslavement. It is true that in the beginning men submit under constraint and by force, but those who come after them obey without regret and perform willingly what their predecessors had done because they had to. This is why men, born under the yoke and then nourished and reared in slavery, are content, without further effort, to live in their native circumstance, unaware of any other state or right, and considering as quite natural the condition into which they were born. End quote. And that passage really, to me, calls to mind the position of domesticated animals, for starters. It also calls to mind, like I said before I read it, most modern-day Americans, and probably most people in the developed world in general. And it also matches up perfectly with the empirical facts I've been studying lately regarding the history of American chattel slavery that I'm researching right now for my upcoming series I'm going to do on that subject in the relatively near future. And what I've found, and I kind of already knew this, but you know, I've been finding more and more of it, is that over and over again, you see references to the fact that first-generation African slaves, those who have just been imported to work on the plantations, were always very, quote-unquote, difficult they were resistant, they were rebellious, they had to be physically disciplined and coerced a lot. And still, often they were not terribly productive. But it was their descendants, especially once you got a couple of generations down the line, born and raised knowing nothing but slavery in the New World, their descendants were, certainly they occasionally would rebel, they would do other forms of resistance, but compared to the first generation of imports, their descendants 
were much more compliant, much more easily controlled, much more accepting of their situation, required a lot less blatant physical punishment. Not that that went away, obviously, but that it became a lot less frequently needed. And sometimes a sort of Stockholm effect will make things even worse than just reluctant compliance. Sometimes people go over the top and don't just reluctantly accept their situation, but actively, to some degree or another, are proud of their obedience, are proud of being the best, you know, domesticated, exploited animal they can be. And here's Bweti on that topic, quote, Men are like handsome racehorses who first bite the bit and later like it, and rearing under the saddle a while soon learn to enjoy displaying their harness and prance proudly, end quote. But of course, as Bweti points out, not everyone does so. Even after a bunch of generations, there are still some people who, for whatever inherent reason, just cannot be accommodated into the system of subjection. These are the people who remain difficult. They remain, from the point of view of the would-be rulers, the problem children. Even in the case of African slaves, they're obviously, even after many generations under the lash, were still some people who just were resistant who just wouldn't stop trying to you know, get away or do whatever they could to try and improve their situation. Bweti calls these sorts of people, um, in terms of those living under the state, quote, men who never became tamed under subjection, end quote. And he further describes these unusual individuals in the following terms, quote, these are in fact the men who, possessed of clear minds and far-sighted spirit, are not satisfied, like the brutish mass, to see only what is at their feet, but rather to look about them, behind and before, and even recall the things of the past, in order to judge those of the future, and compare both with their present condition. These are the ones who, having good minds of their own, have further trained them by study and learning. Even if liberty had entirely perished from the earth, such men would invent it." End quote. Now, I hope, at least on a good day, that that describes me, and I certainly hope that it describes you listening as well. Again, it calls to mind the idea of the remnant, and it even calls to mind some of the elitist elements of Taoism, the concept of the scholar warrior, the concept that a lot of people just aren't going to get it, but that's okay. There, Many of them may not ever get it. And it calls to mind, of course, almost in similar language, the notion of learning the past as a form of empowerment, that you learn the past to understand the present and prepare for the future and try to shape it, at least for your own personal life, the best you can. So I think you can understand if you've listened to more than a few episodes of this podcast, why a lot of Bweti's writings like really, really ring for me. Now, Bweti begins the third and final part of the book as follows, again, summarizing what he's about to discuss, quote, if things are to change... One must realize the extent to which the foundation of tyranny lies in the vast networks of corrupted people with an interest in maintaining tyranny, end quote. And all I could say to that is here, here. Now, I, I could quote and talk about this powerful little book, probably a bunch more, but I think for the sake of time, I better move on to the next one. The next book on the list is by Franz Oppenheimer, and it's entitled simply The State. It was first published in German as Der Staat, which means the state, in 1908, and was later translated into English and other languages as well. Franz Oppenheimer, the author of this book, was a late 19th-slash-early 20th century physician and also sociologist, and he was himself something of a socialist or kind of like a left anarchist. 
an anarchist-leaning person, but who criticized capitalism and property and so on. But nonetheless, many libertarians and individualist anarchists have been influenced by him over the last century or so. For example, uh, Murray Rothbard cites him in The Anatomy of the State, which is another book on this list. In his little book, The State, Oppenheimer argues in favor of what's called the conquest theory of state formation, as opposed to the so-called social contract theory as being the most accurate description of how states have actually formed in reality. In fact, he derides the contract story of how governments came to be as, his words, a fairy tale. And if you're not familiar with it, the basic idea of contract theory is that well, governments come about because why all the members of a particular community get together and they make an agreement with each other that, okay, we're going to create this thing called the government and it's, we're all going to chip in a certain amount of our, of our money and whatever to fund it. And it's going to have certain uh, functions to take care of our property and protect our persons and so on. And that this is how governments come to be. And then governments then later base their legitimacy in part on this story. But as Oppenheimer points out, it's virtually impossible to find any case of an actual government in actual history being formed that way. Governments instead usually tend to form through one type or another of conquest. Going way back into ancient times, you find typically what happens is that you'll have a group of people who are living very often they're a settled agricultural people, they're not terribly warlike, what have you, and then some outsiders come in who have various advantages in fighting, they have more of a warlike culture, they might have better weapons technologies and so forth. And then those people, initially they come in periodically as raiders to just, you know, pillage and, and burn and rape and steal what they can and ride off. But what happens over time is that sooner or later, one of the brighter members of the raiding group will realize, hey, if we move in permanently into this valley or whatever, and we set ourselves up as the permanent overlords of these people we've been plundering periodically, we'll get less loot up front, but over the long term, we'll be able to squeeze a lot more loot out of the population. And so if you actually look back into how many ancient states were formed, this is frequently the story. And even in cases where at first glance, superficially, you might think there's a social contract, the reality is not really that that way at all. Oppenheimer, for example, points out the obvious objection many people would make. Well, what about the United States? Isn't that a social contract? And of course, in in any literal sense of the word contract, it's not. But aside from that, as Oppenheimer points out, that wasn't really founded through everybody coming together and agreeing to start this new thing. Instead, it was just one group fought off the British elite who was governing America and then set themselves up as the new elite that was going to be governing America. And I think Oppenheimer somewhere in the state even says something to the effect of, yeah, they never gave the actual people of America the option to vote for none of the above. They never gave the people of America the option to just not have anybody taxing them and exploiting them and what have you. Oppenheimer describes the real origins of states as follows, quote, The state is a social institution forced by a victorious group of men on a defeated group with the sole purpose of regulating the dominion of the victorious group over the vanquished and securing itself against revolt from within and attacks from abroad. Teleologically, this dominion had no other purpose than the economic exploitation of the vanquished by the victors. No primitive state known to history originated in any other manner. 
Wherever a reliable tradition reports otherwise, either it concerns the amalgamation of two fully developed primitive states into one body of more complex organization, or else it is an adaptation to men of the fable of the sheep, which made a bear their king in order to be protected against the wolf. But even in the latter case, the form and content of the state became precisely the same as in those states where nothing intervened, and which became immediately wolf states. The little history learned in our school days suffices to prove this generic doctrine. Everywhere we find some warlike tribe of wild men breaking through the boundaries of some less warlike people, settling down as nobility and founding its state. End quote. Oppenheimer then cites a bunch of historical examples of this taking place, some well known, others less so, and then he points out that where there are not people, who are amenable to being conquered and exploited in a particular territory, quote, where only roving huntsmen are found who may be exterminated but not subjugated, the conquerors resort to the device of importing from afar masses of men to be exploited, to be subject perpetually to forced labor, and thus the slave trade arises, end quote. So yeah, basically, hunter-gatherers are not as easy to conquer and tame and, and exploit as settled agricultural peoples, but they can be wiped out by superior firepower and disease and what have you, and then state builders will just import people to be their, their workers, in some cases their literal slaves from abroad. And you can see this happening in, for example, colonial American history, where for a variety of reasons, most of the Native Americans proved to not be very good slaves, and so they bring in first white indentured servants and then increasingly African slaves. In one key and very influential part of the state, Oppenheimer lays out the only two means by which men can seek to satisfy their wants and needs. He refers to them as work and robbery, and then says they are, respectively, the economic means of getting wealth, and the political means of getting wealth. Work, the economic means. Robbery, the political means. And his economic means is something I don't quite agree with how he spells it out. It seems to be based mostly on a labor theory of value, which I think is, is a very, very flawed concept. Um, in fact, later, when Rothbard adopts a lot of Oppenheimer's analysis, he adapts it a little bit into the voluntary means versus the coercive means. So that basically any way of achieving wealth that is not coercive in, in interactions with others would be included in that, uh, that category without relying solely on labor as the source of ownership or the source of value, which, again, labor, labor theory of value, a lot of people still believe it to this day, but it is highly flawed. Now, the bulk of the rest of the state by Oppenheimer goes through historical examples of different kinds of states. And while I don't agree with all of Oppenheimer's arguments or interpretations or conclusions, and I think at least some of his historical examples are flawed based on the last hundred years of scholarship and research and so on since he wrote, nonetheless, I find those two key insights that I talked about to be very valuable in understanding the true nature of states. Number one, that in reality, states are formed through conquest, not through contract, and number two, that there are only two ways of getting wealth, the economic means and the political means, and that the state is simply making the political means into a regular, ongoing affair, the better to enrich those who benefit from the state's actions. The fourth book on my list of ten books to slay the state is 
by the American historian Edmund Morgan, and the book is Inventing the People, The Rise of Popular Sovereignty in England and America, first published in 1988. Now, Edmund Morgan was a very famous and respected history professor in the United States. He was a professor of history at Yale and, like, for decades, was one of the most respected historians on the subject of colonial and revolutionary-era American history. He actually died not that long ago, in 2013, at the age of 97. Many of his books are still considered essential reads in particular subject areas on early American history. For example, his History of Virginia, entitled American Slavery, American Freedom, is still considered a very important work in the fields of early Virginia history and the history of American slavery, even though this book was published first over 40 years ago. And it's no doubt a book I'll be referring to, perhaps even quoting, in my upcoming series on the history of American slavery. But the book I'm going to talk about here is Inventing the People, one of his lesser-known books, but in my opinion, one of his most interesting. And looking at his vast publishing resume, this book was one of the latter books in his career. I think he only published a few books after this one. In Inventing the People, Morgan makes the admission that members of the political and academic and media establishment rarely make. He makes the admission that the whole concept of what's called popular sovereignty or sovereignty of the people, that the people are the source of all political power and are the ultimate decision makers. This concept upon which modern American government theoretically rests is a fiction. He then goes on to present the history of how this concept emerged and how it came to be exploited by elites who wanted to govern everybody, but wanted to make it seem palatable for everybody to obey them. And this happened first in Britain in the 17th century, and then in the U.S. starting in the late 19th century. Like Etienne de la Boete, whom I talked about earlier, Morgan starts from the point of view that we shouldn't take for granted this whole concept of people obeying authority. In fact, when you look at it objectively with fresh eyes, it's strange that the many obey the few. And they do so willingly most of the time. They rarely need to be truly coerced. And that this ultimately rests on the beliefs of the many that the few should tell them what to do, that the elite should rightfully govern them, and they should obey. Morgan actually starts off the book Inventing the People with a quote from David Hume along the same lines. Quote, Nothing is more surprising than to see the easiness with which the many are governed by the few and to observe the implicit submission with which men resign their own sentiments and passions to those of their rulers. When we inquire by what means this wonder is brought about, we shall find that force is always on the side of the governed. The governors have nothing to support them but opinion. Tis therefore on opinion only that government is founded, and this maxim extends to the most despotic and most military governments as well as to the most free and most popular." End quote. So, yeah, you've got this situation where the people vastly outnumber those who are telling them what to do. And so the elites really ultimately, even in a dictatorship, rule ultimately rests on opinion. On the task of getting this assent to rule by the elites, Morgan says that it's, quote, no easy task for the opinions needed to make the many submit to the few are often at variance with observable fact. 
The success of government thus requires the acceptance of fictions, requires the willing suspension of disbelief, requires us to believe that the emperor is clothed, even though we can see that he is not. Government requires make-believe. Make-believe that the king is divine, make-believe that he can do no wrong, or make-believe that the voice of the people is the voice of God. Make-believe that the people have a voice, or make-believe that the representatives of the people are the people. Make-believe that the governors are the servants of the people. Make-believe that all men are equal, or make-believe that they are not. Because it is a little uncomfortable to acknowledge that we rely so heavily on fictions, we generally call them by some more exalted name. We may proclaim them as self-evident truths, and that designation is not inappropriate, for it implies our commitment to them, and at the same time protects them from challenge. Among the fictions we accept today as self-evident are those that Thomas Jefferson enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, and that they owe obedience to government only if it is their own agent, deriving its authority from their consent. It would be difficult, if not impossible, to demonstrate these propositions by factual evidence. It might be somewhat easier, by the kind of evidence we usually require for the proof of any debatable proposition— to demonstrate that men are not created equal and that they have not delegated authority to any government. But self-evident propositions are not debatable, and to challenge these would rend the fabric of our society. End quote. Now, as kind of indicated by the end of that last quote I just read, Morgan's pointing out the falsehood of these ideas on which the state's authority rests, but then he's at the end of it all defending these fictions in a lot of ways as being better for society than the alternative. Sort of like if someone was writing a book exposing the truth about the Matrix, but then after giving you a glimpse behind the curtain, argues that the Matrix, while admittedly built on falsehood, is still ultimately beneficial in the grand scheme of things. So, uh, for example, shortly after the quote that I just read a moment ago, Morgan writes the following, quote, I can only hope that readers who persevere to the end of the book will recognize that the fictional qualities of popular sovereignty sustain rather than threaten the human values associated with it. I hope they will also recognize that I do not imply deception or delusion on the part of those who employ or subscribe to the fictions examined here, fictions in which they willingly suspended disbelief. My purpose is not to debunk but to explore the wonder that Hume points to, the fact that most of us submit willingly to be governed by a few of us, end quote. So Morgan, after his introduction, goes on to examine the divine right of kings, which was the main governing fiction in early modern Britain up to the 17th century, as it was in most of Europe at the time as well. And believe it or not, the notion of the divine right of kings could actually be used to try to limit the king's power as much as to increase it. Now, like all governing fictions, Morgan says, this is not the reality. And as the fiction gets further and further from reality, eventually it leads to the English Civil War and Revolution, and then later also the Glorious Revolution in the 1680s. And the fiction that replaced it in the English political mythology was a concept of sovereignty of the people because of representation in Parliament. Now, this fiction, which Morgan acknowledges, is also America's main uh, foundational fiction of its government to this day, seems plausible to us much more so than the divine right of kings. But as he points out, that's because it's our fiction, not because it's actually objectively real. It's still just a way for an elite group to get the masses to obey them. Happens to be one that stands up a little bit better than 
divine right of kings, at least given current conditions, but it's no more objectively true. Now, in the remainder of the book, Morgan tracks the rise of this fiction of popular sovereignty, uh, first in Britain and then in America, and he talks about how representatives were chosen in both countries based on geographical units, on local and mid-sized communities, and how pretty quickly the so-called representatives of those geographical units came to be, really in practice, the bosses of, rather than the representatives of, the people, and that the representatives basically came to to align their interests more with the state as a whole than with the people that they supposedly represented. Quote, The sovereignty of the people was an instrument by which representatives raised themselves to the maximum distance above the particular set of people who chose them. In the name of the people, they became all-powerful in government, shedding as much as possible the local subject character that made them representatives of a particular set of people, end quote. And here's another bit on this, quote, With the fictional people suddenly supreme, actual people, as embodied in local communities, found their traditional rights and liberties in jeopardy from a representative body that recognized only a fictional superior, end quote. Now, this notion of sovereignty of the people through representation was one of the main ideologies behind the American Revolution, and it was also, in a lot of ways, the main narrative behind the Federalist coup d'etat that resulted in the writing and ratification of the Constitution. Remember, the document begins, We the People, and the Federalists claimed that they were essentially going over the local and state communities and dealing with the people as a whole. And they, they called it, they started this document with the phrase, we the people, even though it was like we, a handful of super elite guys meeting in secret in Philadelphia with no outside consultation whatsoever. And yet they started it, we the people. And Patrick Henry and a few other people called them on this. But for the most part, to this day, people are taught, yes, the Constitution is this wonderful, magical document. And it even begins with the phrase, we the people. So it must be good magic. This is what Edmund Morgan in this very candid book says, quote, In a sense, representation had always been a fiction designed to secure popular consent to a governing aristocracy, end quote. So he's acknowledging whether you're talking about 17th century Britain, 18th century America, or presumably modern day America, there is a political class, there is a small elite group that actually are making the decisions regarding the state. Representation is not real. It is a fiction. But in Morgan's eyes, it is a necessary fiction because without it, I guess we'd be worse. And Morgan characterizes things like reform movements as basically efforts to get the realities of power in politics to at least somewhat more closely resemble the fiction of popular sovereignty. Although it seems like he doesn't think that the reality can ever fully match the fiction. There can never be true 100% representation of the people. Well, this book is not an easy read. I would not recommend it to you unless you're into sort of intellectual slash political history. And uh, it would probably be best if you already have some background in 18th century America and in 17th and 18th century Britain in terms of the political history and a little bit of the intellectual history. Uh, Otherwise, a lot of this book would, would be tough to follow. I luckily already had a background in those areas before I read it, so I didn't have a problem Uh, understanding it and and knowing what the context was he was talking about. 
So it's a very interesting work. It's very well written. It's a dense, challenging piece of political and intellectual history. Obviously, I don't agree with all of Morgan's conclusions, but I think I'll give him credit. He is being honest in a way that establishment historians rarely are. And I think he raises a ton of important questions in this book that rarely get raised anywhere. The next book I'll mention is Lysander Spooner's book, No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, which was first published as a series of essays in 1870. And by the way, you can go way back and apologize for what the audio was. I was still figuring this thing out and still uh, trying to figure out how to get decent equipment. But all the way back to episode 25 of the Dangerous History podcast for my DHP Heroes episode on Lysander Spooner. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Now, like so many of us liberty-minded people who are from the piece of dirt currently known as the United States— Lysander Spooner began as a big fan of and a big quoter of the Constitution early in his intellectual development. But by the time you get around to the aftermath of the so-called Civil War and a lot of other things Spooner had dealt with over the years, eventually he had abandoned the Constitution entirely as being not helpful at all and not legitimate. And he came to the conclusion that as a document, it's severely flawed and hasn't worked, and ultimately that the whole concept of a social contract is a bogus concept, and that there's no way that the Constitution could or should be considered a bulwark of liberty. So in this book, No Treason, it's not the most readable book. In the, I mean, you can understand it, but it's not like it's a, it's a literary masterpiece. It, it almost reads a lot of it more like a legal brief, where he's just systematically going boom, boom, boom knocking down all the points um, against the Constitution. But in this book, Spooner attacks the, the basic concept of a social contract government and then attacks the American Constitution as a specific example of that sort of thing. And then he also attacks the Union side uh, narrative of the Civil War, which, remember, had only recently wrapped up when he was writing. So he, he systematically takes the concept apart like the lawyer that he in fact was, and shows, um, I think that he comes to valid conclusions and makes valid, valid arguments that a constitution is not a, a valid reason to extort someone's obedience to a particular state. So I'll just quote one of the more well-known and one of my favorite passages from No Treason. This is from actually the end. Quote, Inasmuch as the Constitution was never signed, nor agreed to, by anybody as a contract, and therefore never bound anybody, and is now binding upon nobody, and is, moreover, such a one as no people can ever hereafter be expected to consent to, except as they may be forced to do so at the point of the bayonet, it is perhaps of no importance what its true legal meaning as a contract is." Nevertheless, the writer thinks it proper to say that, in his opinion, the Constitution is no such instrument as, has, as it has generally been assumed to be, but that by false interpretations and naked usurpations, the government has been made in practice a very widely and almost wholly different thing from what the Constitution itself purports to authorize. He has therefore written much and could write much more to prove that such is the truth. But whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain, that it is either authorized such a government as we have had, or has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist, end quote. 
So yeah, even in his day, there was a government that many people could plausibly argue had greatly exceeded the original intent and meaning of the Constitution. And so after going through all the different logical arguments why the whole social contract theory can't be correct, he concludes by saying, look, at the end of the day, there's two possibilities. Looking at this government, and of course it's massively bigger and worse since 1870, but even looking at it in 1870, and there appear to be all sorts of things not really uh, kosher with the Constitution, Spooner says, look, there's two possibilities looking around. Either the Constitution, you know, the Federalists and those people are right, and it does actually have these implied powers and does actually support all these things the government does, or it doesn't, in which case it hasn't done a damn thing to prevent those things from happening. So it's not really useful. And I had already been on my own kind of figuring my way towards some of these uh, positions and some of these arguments. But when I discovered this essay by Spooner and read it, it crystallized it. And it helped me slough off what was left of my emotional attachment to the, to the mystique and the myth of the U.S. Constitution. The next book on my list is by Jacques Ellul, and it's entitled Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes. It was first published in French, uh, Ellul's language, in 1962, and was later translated into English, and as far as I know, a bunch of other languages too. Now, Jacques Ellul is an interesting guy. I've read a few other things by him besides this, but uh, this is the one I've probably looked at and thought about the most. He was a Christian anarchist writer and philosopher and academic in the 20th century, and this book, which I had to read for a graduate school class I did, and, and I'm glad it was you know something we had to read because I benefited from reading it, this book is an interesting study. It's, it's mostly kind of analytical of propaganda, thinking about it in terms of psychological and sociological lines, like how it works and, you know, what makes good propaganda and why is it so pervasive in modern society? Why is propaganda, if anything, even worse and more pervasive in democracies than in, than in nominal dictatorships? So this was an important book for me in making me realize what propaganda really was, how pervasive and powerful and subtle it actually is, and how much of what's around us all the time that we don't think of as propaganda really is propaganda. And where this connects to slaying the state is, obviously states aren't the only institutions that engage in propaganda, but I think most of us would agree that states and their sort of surrogates and helpers, such as things like mainstream religious institutions usually, or mainstream media, obviously, these are, putting them all together, the state and its, its surrogates and helpers, the top source of propaganda today. So by understanding what propaganda really is and how it really works, you can see through a lot of the bullshit put out by the state and by their different allied mouthpieces. So this is a very hard book to summarize. It's all over the place in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that, that it's, you know, hard to understand really, but it kind of jumps around a lot of different concepts and is written in a style that I can only characterize as, as a continental intellectual style, I guess. It's written in a style that most English language readers would consider kind of a little bit strange, although, you know, I got used to it after a little while. And uh, despite it being a little, little bit of a different style and different way of approaching things, I do think it's a brilliant analysis, and it really does dig deep. This is one of those things where once you read this book you start to realize just how all-pervasive propaganda really is, and that it's all around you, 
and you've been duped by it more times than you care to admit that good propaganda is way more slick than most people think. Most people really effective propaganda is propaganda that most people never even remotely realize is propaganda. So it's very insidious, much more so than most people ever realize. So here's just a little sample. And there's lots of nuggets like this in this book from Jacques Ellul. Quote, the skillful propagandist will seek to obtain action without demanding consistency, without fighting prejudices and images, by taking his stance deliberately on inconsistencies, end quote. Ilul points out that propaganda is so effective in modern society because it plays to the vast majority of people whom he calls undecided. He describes these people as, quote, those people whose opinions are vague, who form the great mass of citizens, and who constitute the most fertile public for the propagandist, end quote. These people, very importantly, they are and they desperately want to remain members of their group. So people like that, they want to have their own opinions. They feel like they have to have an opinion on everything, but they're not equipped in part because of mental capacity, but in part just simply because of limitations on how much time can you spend if you have a job and a family and whatever, you know, researching every issue in depth, right? Such people want to have opinions on every issue, but they're not equipped to really come up with their own opinions. And so propaganda actually fulfills a need for them by giving them opinions to have. So speaking of such a mass individual person, one of these undecideds, Ilul says, quote, he is caught between his desire and his inability, which he refuses to accept. For no citizen will believe that he is unable to have opinions. Public opinion surveys always reveal that people have opinions even on the most complicated questions, except for a small minority, usually the most informed and those who have reflected most. Hey, by the way, side note, that's interesting. It kind of dovetails with the whole Socrates concept of Socrates was wiser than everybody else in Athens because Socrates knew that he didn't really know anything. He knew the limits of his knowledge and sort of ties in with the whole Dunning-Kruger effect as well, where the people who actually know the most about something are often those who are the most humble when they are rating their knowledge or expertise in an area. So very often the people who actually know the most about something are going to be the ones that are willing to uh, say that they don't have an opinion on something or that they don't know enough about it. Anyway, back to Alul. quote, the majority prefers expressing stupidities to not expressing any opinion. This gives them the feeling of participation. For this, they need simple thoughts, elementary explanations, a key that will permit them to take a position and even ready-made opinions. And the individual does not want information but only value judgments and preconceived positions, end quote. Can you just picture people tuning in to Fox News or MSNBC every night? Ilul ends the book on kind of an ambivalent note as follows, quote, It is merely convenient to realize that the side of freedom and truth for man has not yet lost, but that it may well lose, and that in this game, Propaganda is undoubtedly the most formidable power, acting in only one direction, towards the destruction of truth and freedom, no matter what the good intentions or the goodwill may be of those who manipulate it. End quote. 
So there, there are some other great books on propaganda as well. This was one of the first ones, though, that I encountered that really blew my mind in such a way that it had me looking around and really thinking about things critically and independently for the first time in a lot of ways. Up till that point in my development, I had basically been more or less a right winger, and I started to realize that right wing media is just as much propaganda as left wing media. So I think a great way to begin freeing yourself from being a dupe manipulated by propaganda back and forth like a ping pong ball or something is to understand what propaganda really is and how it really works. The next book on my list is is a short one, really almost more of a long essay, but it has been published as a book. And it's one I've mentioned on this show multiple times already, so I probably won't say as much about it as some of these other books. And that is The Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard, which I think was first published like in the mid-1970s. And I decided to put this piece, even though it's another fairly short one, it might be one of the shortest ones in this list, because it was a major influence on me. I read this one before I read some of Rothbard's longer, you know, big books and things like this. And so with those, by the time I read a lot of the longer Rothbard books about economics and philosophy and whatever, I already pretty much agreed with what he was saying. Whereas the anatomy of the state, actually, I came across at sort of a uh, a turning point in my intellectual development, and it did actually help uh, shape me in, in the way that I am. So it was hugely influential on me, and I actually have students read an excerpt of it as the first reading assignment in my World Civilization courses. That's, that's how important I think this thing is. And you can, if you want, buy a little book of it through Amazon. I'll put it in the link. I'm going to link to all the books on my list in the affiliate links in the show notes for this episode. But this is one you can also find for free in various places, including the Mises Institute website. Rothbard talks about what the state is not, because a lot of people have all these notions of what the state is that are not true. This idea that it's sort of society or that it's a charitable organization or this sort of thing. And Rothbard debunks those. He says, we are not the government. and The government is not us. The government does not in any accurate sense represent the majority of the people. And then he goes on to define the state in pretty common language as a monopoly of force and violence in a given territory which almost any political scientist, no matter what their ideology, would agree with that definition of a state. And yet, most people walking around, they don't think of their government that way. They think of it as, oh, it's society getting better, getting together to uh, solve problems and make the world better and represent the people's interests and all this sort of nonsense. So he borrows Oppenheimer's notion of the the economic means of getting wealth versus the political means and that sort of thing. And um, then, then analyzes how states preserve itself. And along the lines of some of these other books I'm mentioning on this list comes to the conclusion that a big part of it is ideology. A big part of it is through various means, getting people to believe that the state is just and good and inevitable and should be obeyed. So I talked a little bit about this. He gets into the Alliance of throne and altar concept here a little bit and I talked about this as well in the episode I did a little while back on the Alliance of Throne and Altar. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well, that episode, if you've not heard it. And he talks about how states routinely break through the limits imposed upon them, whether those are constitutions and bills of rights or other sorts of attempts to limit state action. States tend to always find a way over, around, or through any of those barriers. But he comes to the conclusion, I think justifiably so, that any attempt 
to try to limit states is a waste of time. You need to find better solutions. So Rothbard writes, quote, Of all the numerous forms that governments have taken over the centuries, of all the concepts and institutions that have been tried, none has succeeded in keeping the state in check. The problem of the state is evidently as far from solution as ever. Perhaps new paths of inquiry must be explored if the successful final solution of the state question is ever to be attained. End quote. Book number eight on my list of ten books to slay the state is by R.J. Rummel, and it's entitled Death by Government, first published in 1994. And R.J. Rummel was a professor of political science at the University of Hawaii for many years, and he died just a couple of years ago, I think. This was the guy who term, coined the term democide to describe the phenomenon of governments mass murdering their own people. In this book, Death by Government, Rummel summarizes a lot of the research he had been doing for years before this, and he looks at democides in the 20th century. His research indicated that over the course of the 20th century, governments killed well over 200 million people in various types of democides, which, by the way, is about six times as many people as died in wars during the same time period. In other words, people killed by the armed forces of another government in wartime. And everybody talks about the 20th century being the bloodiest century in human history for wars with World War I, World War II, and lots of other small and medium-sized wars. But rarely before Rummel did people talk about the fact that as many people died in wars in the 20th century as did, and it, it's a ton, that governments actually are more likely to kill their own people than they are to kill other countries' people during wars, just, you know, statistically. So six times as many people died in democides as died in wars in the 20th century. So this is an interesting book just from the standpoint of, and it's very depressing to read, but it's necessary because he walks you through all of these mass murders uh, throughout the 20th century, some very well known, some a lot less known. One of the nice things about this book, and you know, nice, and he's covering all this, this horrible stuff, but one of the nice things about the book is that he really does not pull any punches, and he does dig into left-wing, you know, communist and socialist regimes, mass murderings in ways that a lot of academia wants to ignore or, or be apologists for or what have you. And you learn the magnitude of some of these things, like the killings in Cambodia, for example, under Pol Pot. And he's just got, you know, data and graphs and charts and whatever, and you just see it, how bad it really was. Now, Rummel, I think this is important information, but Rummel's conclusions are not always ones that I'm in agreement with. He was, from my perspective, good on some things. He claimed, later he said some things that, that belie this, but he claimed to oppose attacking another country as a method to spread freedom and democracy. And he said uh, somewhere once that the U.S. government under Woodrow Wilson was basically a tyranny, which... I'm in agreement with that. And he rightfully criticized academia for tending to want to turn a blind eye to cases where left-wing governments mass murder people and to want to focus mostly on right-wing democides. And he wrote things like this. Then there is the common and fundamental justification of government that it exists to protect citizens against the anarchic jungle that would otherwise threaten their lives and property. Such archaic or sterile, sterile views show no appreciation of democide's existence and all its related horrors and suffering. 
They are inconsistent with a regime that stands astride society, like a gang of thugs over hikers they have captured in the woods, robbing all, raping some, torturing others for fun, murdering those they don't like, and terrorizing the rest into servile obedience. This exact characterization of many past and present governments, such as Idi Amin's in Uganda, hardly squares with conventional political science, end quote. So I applaud him on his willingness to talk about and, and just starkly expose lots of things that other academics were not. On the other hand, towards the end of his life, he was a supporter, R.J. Rummel, of the War on Terror and the invasion of Iraq in 2003, even though he had previously said that invasion is not a good way to spread democracy and freedom. And he stuck to, and this is an argument he makes in Death by Government, the argument that democracy and things like checks and balances were the cure for democide and other government abuses of power, that that's the solution is just more democracy. And he also believed in this notion of democratic peace theory, which is, is the argument that democracies don't go to war as much, or at least democracies don't fight each other or something like that, which has some flaws and some criticisms I won't get into here because of time. And uh, especially when you look at how many wars the United States has started, it becomes kind of problematic to say that that uh, democratic republics are somehow these peace-loving countries. I mean, some democratic republics stay out of war a lot, but others don't. So Rummel, despite all of this horrible stuff he exposes, can't come to the conclusion that the state should be opposed as such. Well, I appreciate Rummel's work in filling in this important gap in 20th century world history, and even though I don't agree with Rummel's conclusions that democracy is the solution and so on, I still think this is an important book because it shows you just how bad the 20th century really was in terms of governments mass murdering their own people. Again, far worse than the threat posed by the for by the by the foreign governments that your government is always claiming to be protecting you from. So this book actually helped nudge me a little more along the path towards becoming an anarchist, even though Rummel's conclusion is that we just need liberal democracy with checks and balances to solve everything. The next book is one I think I've mentioned several times, and uh, probably the most in my episode on grain in the state that I did a while back, and I'll try to remember to link to that episode in the show notes for this show as well. And that is by uh, James C. Scott, The Art of Not Being Governed. This book, I believe, was first published in 2010, and it doesn't make any sort of real theoretical or philosophical case for anarchy. Scott is sympathetic to anarchism, which is rare amongst modern academics, although he admits he is not himself an actual anarchist. But this book is a history of people in a part of the world known as Zomia, which is the upland areas of Southeast Asia, and the ways in which, uh, throughout much of history, these people have lived without a state, and how they've resisted being incorporated into the states that are around them in the valleys. So it's a very fascinating look at real historical cases about of people, number one, living and doing quite nicely without a state ruling over them, two, having things about their culture and their way of life that deliberately make it harder for states to take them over or to emerge from within them. 
And three, the fact that these are conscious choices, that it's not a case of these people in the hills and mountains were just primitives left behind by the progress of history and uh, not knowing the blessings of civilization. That in fact, in a lot of cases, these people in the hills and mountains in Southeast Asia had formerly lived under states and had deliberately gone away from them and uh, into these areas that just because of physical you know, logistics were harder for states to extend their, their will into back then that these people eventually went there for freedom to deliberately get away from the so-called blessings of civilization. And so it's a book with a lot of profound implications besides just a lot of interesting history. And there, there are a lot of uh, parallels in other parts of the world. Scott talks about many of them, people who have gone into other difficult terrain areas, swamps, um, harsh desert, what have you, in order to get away from states. This book shows not only can people live without a state, but that many people throughout history have consciously chosen to live without a state. And it gives you some interesting ideas of the different strategies and practices that people in that situation have followed in times gone by in order to avoid the state or at the very least to limit their interactions with states to only those interactions that are beneficial to them, like sort of doing only interacting with the state on your own terms in a way that is beneficial to you. So highly recommend that book. Uh, it, it is excellent. And the last book on my list today is Notes on Democracy by the American writer of the early 20th century, H.L. Mencken. This book was first published in 1926, and it really ridicules the concept of democracy and ridicules the specific ways in which this was practiced in the America of Mencken's day, often in ways which really aren't that much different from today, to be honest with you. Mencken, in his usual combination of biting sarcasm and, uh, and, and ridicule and humor, characterizes the modern belief in democracy as being like a crazy fundamentalist religion. And he is ruthless in ridiculing the masses and their faith in the collective wisdom to be expressed at the polls. Mencken writes, quote, The mob being composed of the overwhelming main of men and women who have not got beyond the ideas and emotions of childhood hovers in mental age around the time of puberty and chiefly below it, end quote. Now, here's a, a few more kind of a smorgasbord of Mencken quotes from this book that are interesting. Politics under democracy consists almost wholly of the discovery, chase, and scotching of bugaboos. The statesman becomes, in the last analysis, a mere witch hunter, a glorified smeller and snooper, eternally chanting, fee fi fo fum It has been so in the United States since the earliest days. The whole history of the country has been a history of melodramatic pursuits of horrendous monsters, most of them imaginary. Next. Government under democracy is thus government by orgy, almost by orgasm. Its processes are most beautifully displayed at times when they stand most naked. For example, in war days. The history of the American share in the World War, he means World War I, is simply a record of conflicting fears, more than once amounting to frenzies. Next, quote from Mencken in Notes on Democracy, writing in particular about the um, urban lower class, what he calls city mobs, quote, When the city mob fights, it is not for liberty, but for ham and cabbage. When it wins, its first act is to destroy every form of freedom that is not directed wholly to that end. 
and its second is to butcher all the professional libertarians. If Thomas Jefferson had been living in Paris in 1793, he would have made an even narrower escape from the guillotine than Thomas Paine made. The fact is that liberty, in any true sense, is a concept that lies quite beyond the reach of the inferior man's mind. And then skipping a little ways down in the same chapter, quote, Liberty means self-reliance. It means resolution. It means enterprise. It means the capacity for doing without. The free man is one who has won a small and precarious territory from the great mob of his inferiors and is prepared and ready to defend it and make it support him. All around him are enemies, and where he stands there is no friend. He can hope for little help from other men of his own kind, for they have battles of their own to fight. He has made of himself a sort of god in his little world, and he must face the responsibilities of a god and the dreadful loneliness. End quote. So he's got this very elitist and pessimistic look about most people. He writes things like this, quote, It is a tragic but inescapable fact that most of the finest fruits of human progress, like all of the nobler virtues of man, are the exclusive possession of small minorities, chiefly unpopular and disreputable, end quote. And, quote, The demagogue is one who preaches doctrines he knows to be untrue to men he knows to be idiots. The demoslave is one who listens to what these idiots say and then pretends that he believes it himself. End quote. But interestingly, with all of this um, bitter, you know, sardonic elitism and, and denigration of democracy, he ends the piece in a way that's reminiscent of George Carlin. And I wonder if Carlin read Mencken. I, I don't know if he did, but it seems to be a very similar mindset. He ends the book on an upbeat note, surprisingly enough, by saying, yeah, democracy's irrational mob rule, but on the plus side, it's frickin' amusing. He says near the end of the book that, quote, it is perhaps the most charming form of government ever devised by man, end quote. And he further spells out what he means by this as follows, quote, the true charm of democracy is not for the Democrat, but for the spectator. That spectator, it seems to me, is favored with a show of the first cut and caliber. Try to imagine anything more heroically absurd. What grotesque false pretenses. What a parade of obvious imbecilities. What a welter of fraud. The fraud of democracy, I contend, is more amusing than any other. More amusing even, and by miles, than the fraud of religion. End quote. And a little further on, Macon writes, quote, I enjoy democracy immensely. It is incomparably idiotic and hence incomparably amusing. But I am, it may be, a somewhat malicious man. My sympathies, when it comes to suckers, tend to be coy. What I can't make out is how any man can believe in democracy who feels for and with them and is pained when they are debauched and made a show of. End quote. I can only imagine what Mencken would think of this current presidential election. Because that's kind of how I felt lately. Like, this is a ridiculous, even by the standards of American elections, this is a really hilarious uh, cast of characters we've got right now. And all I can say is it's a hell of a freak show. And looking at it just purely as a spectator sport, it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, you know, it might end in some crazy person getting in office who starts World War Three or who knows what, but, you know, at least we get a hell of a show on the way there. 
So anyway, that's my list of 10 books to slay the state. I tried to make them as diverse as possible. I've got some specifically on democracy. I've got the one on propaganda. I've got a bunch of different perspectives that have some parallels, but I think are distinct. And I tried to make it diverse in terms of time periods and in terms of approach and in terms of, you know, history versus philosophy versus political science and, you know, different fields like that. So... I'm sure there are plenty of other books that you could make a case being on this list. Heck, I can think of a few of them, but this is my list and I'm sticking to it. I hope that you found this interesting and worthwhile, and I hope you'll check some of these out if you've not already read all of them, and I doubt anyone but me has read all of these books, just simply because this is my list and I have very omnivorous uh, reading habits. But thank you for listening. As always, I devoutly hope that I have not wasted your time. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over on the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. And sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that... For any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.